Okay, it's time to commit. 2024 is the year for prioritizing yourself. Begin your new smile journey with Byte, and you could start seeing results in just two to three weeks. Just order your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95 at Byte.com. Byte Clear Aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces. Plus, they offer financing options, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA, FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot com. Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Hello. Hello! Welcome to Philosophy for Our Times, bringing you the world's leading thinkers on today's biggest ideas. I'm Ben, a member of the editorial team here at the IAI. And I'm Darcy, and I'm also on the editorial team. So, Darcy, today we've got The Dream of Progress, a debate featuring Kenneth Kukier, who is a senior editor at The Economist, Nolan Gertz, who's the author of Nihilism and Technology, and Katyan Gainty, who's a historian of health and technology. So this took place at How the Light Gets In Festival 2022 at the beautiful Kenwood House. This is the philosophy festival produced by the team here at the IAI. Tell us a bit about the debate. So the debate is titled The Dream of Progress. And I guess it's all about technological progress. I guess it's very topical because right now the world is being radically changed by technology, especially with everything that's happening with AI. I don't want to harp on about it too much. But I think that we have this kind of conception of society where we only measure progress technologically, especially I think in light of all of our other institutions seeming to fail in light of rampant technological progress. So it's basically all about how we measure progress in modern society and is it necessarily technological progress? And it's all technological progress. Progress. Wonderful. Well, that's something that our speakers will unpack. But before we get into that, please do remember... If you enjoyed today's episode, don't forget to like and subscribe on your platform of choice and visit iai.tv for hundreds more podcasts, videos and articles from the world's leading thinkers. So, Darcy, let's hand over to our host for this debate. Jess Wade. Jess Wade! Thank you so much for joining today and we're going to talk on the theme of the dream of progress. From work to entertainment, communication to travel, technology has shaped every aspect of our lives. Unsurprisingly, we think technological progress relentless and inevitable. But Aldous Huxley argued technological progress has merely provided us with a more efficient means for going backwards. The arms industry and climate change would certainly seem to support this case. Meanwhile, advances in phones, computers and the internet have coincided with increases in depression and mental ill health and do not appear to have led to the rise in productivity heralded. Do we need greater control of technology to ensure better outcomes? Should we give up on the idea that technology is the way that we need to make all of our lives better and instead focus on relationships, community and purpose? Or is technology the only credible reason for believing that the future can be better than the past? So, on to our distinguished panel of eminent speakers. Nolan Gertz is a philosopher working on existential phenomenology, political philosophy, and applied ethics. His recent work has focused on nihilism and existentialist critique of technology and state power. Kachin Gainty is a historian of science, technology, and medicine focused on medical skeptics, critics, activists, and reformers to reshape the future as well as to understand the past. Kenneth Kukia is deputy executive editor of The Economist and the host of the hugely popular weekly podcast, Babbage. He is the co-author of the New York Times bestselling book, Big Data. 
So first, I give everyone their opportunity to do their three-minute pitch, and then we go to three different themes for this debate. And I'm going to give Nolan the floor first. So Nolan, over to you on the dream of progress. Thank you, uh, and thank you for having me. Yeah, it's, it's an interesting question to think about. Has uh, technological progress uh, the same as human progress? And of course, this is a question that was asked uh, even as long ago as Jean-Jacques Rousseau, for example. And it's interesting for me to always think in terms not about is technology making life better or worse, but rather in terms of how technology reshapes what we even think better and worse mean. So for example, the philosophy of technology that we focus on at the university where I teach, which makes an even uglier word to pronounce, post-phenomenology, we discuss a lot about how technology mediates human life. So for example, right now, uh, I would say that I'm seeing all of you, but in reality, I'm, I'm seeing my glasses seeing you. You would say that you hear me, but really you hear my microphone. Uh, and those at home, again, you would say you're seeing me, but really you're, you're seeing a camera seeing me, seeing an internet connection, seeing a satellite seeing. So it's again this interesting idea about how technology uh, gives us things, and we focus on the benefits of those things, but to the exclusion of our awareness of the technology itself. So importantly, when we think about uh, questions about progress, the role of technology in shaping our conception of progress gets lost. And this, to me, is uh, hugely important for trying to figure out, can we even judge technology anymore without taking for granted uh, in, in unforeseen ways the role that technology is playing in our lives? Can we even create a distance to see what is technology anymore? Increasingly, my colleagues say that we are technological beings living in a technological world, and we just take that for granted. And we say that's always been the case, going all the way back to caveman times. If you've seen 2001, the, the ape hitting the, the bone, throwing it up, and it becomes the space station, right? This is, this is our technological progress in a nutshell. But it's important, and philosophers of technology have been discussing this for decades, this idea that we, we take our current conception and project it onto the past, and we take for granted that they saw the world the same way we do. And again, it's, it's how do we create the distance so that we could even ask the question of how did they see the world? So my students, when we talk about, for example, because I'm in the Netherlands, we talk about windmills a lot. Uh, <laughs> When we talk about, about the, the current conception of a windmill versus the, the beautiful windmills that you see around the Netherlands, uh, and this idea that, that the, the ancient windmill is sort of like a, a temple to the wind, and that's why it's, it's constructed beautifully, and it's a symbol of the Netherlands that you see everywhere as soon as you get at Schiphol, if you can actually get through Schiphol nowadays. Um, and what we talk about in engineering with the NIMBY problem, that, that's, not a, that's not true of the ancient uh, windmill. That's a, that's a yimby, right? That's, that's yes in my backyard, please. I would love to live next to a windmill. But these, these new windmill farms, you know, they're disgusting, they're horrible. Keep them on the coast as away from us as possible. And this, this is meant to recognize that, again, that, that these technologies, they, they are progressing but we take for granted that we must be progressing with it. So I, I would want to take seriously that we, we need to ask uh, if, if that's true. And, and my answer, of course, is going to be no. So I'm going to come to you next, Kate. And do you think we should give up on the idea that technology is the way to make all of our lives better? 
Yes, I <laughs> absolutely I do. Um, I mean, in, in many ways, some of what Nolan's already said um, really feeds nicely into sort of my own take on some of these issues. I mean, for me, what was really exciting about the opportunity to talk about progress and technology together is precisely this Aldous Huxley sort of notion or uh, Aldous Huxley's moment in time. And I can't, you know, as a historian, I'm obliged, I think, to think in terms of this history, but sort of putting that into its, um, into its context that our contemporary notion of, of progress is fed very much by what's happening in this early 20th century period where values like productivity and efficiency also come from. And I think the way that, you know, he's, you know, says this is not really progress. This is not, you know, this is, this is kind of the antithesis of progress, what's happening in this period. But what's happening is this kind of massive industrialization and the rise of consumerism um, and the real embrace of, of capitalism. Um, and he's sort of likening those issues and sort of thinking like, well, it must be the technologies, right? The technologies are the things that drive progress. But of course, you know, you can think of progress in so many other kinds of terms. And I think, you know, as I was thinking about this, I was thinking about the Pilgrim's Progress, right? Or this notion, as Huxley himself describes, this notion of progress that something for the medieval period is very much about stability and staying the same. So the thing that you most want to do is to be the, you know, the best person you can be in a very consistent sort of way, because that's the thing that's going to open the door to your salvation. And so we see these ideas of, of progress um, changing a lot over time. And the way in which we kind of think about progress now as something that's deeply technological, I think, is really sort of a historical artifact of, of the period in which we're living. And so I think the way to think about progress in some sense, uh, given this sort of context, is to think not, I mean, sort of along the lines of, of what you're describing, to think sort of n not about you know whether or not technology is the way forward, or pro we need to keep progressing in this technological way in order to kind of move forward, but instead to start asking questions around why we put these kinds of questions in these terms. So why does progress have to go along with technology? Why is technology something that we have to think of in terms of you know, good or bad values? Um, why can't we think about sort of technology as being something that's a kind of you know, a, a, a way in which um, with technology we together sort of make meaning in the world world. It seems to me that there are lots more options that are available to us that in certain ways this kind of trajectory of progress has really cut off. And I, 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 I very much like the idea and I'm a proponent of the idea that we can think differently and, and we should. Awesome. And, and finally, I'm going to hand over to you, Ken, for your pitch. So should we, now we've heard from Nolan and, and also from Kachin, do you think that we should give up on the idea that technology is a way to make our lives better? I, I rebel so much at that very formulation that it's hard for me to limit my <laughs> remarks to three minutes. But uh, I thought both of your uh, opening sort of remarks were uh, very thoughtful and, and give me a lot to mull. And of course, I can't help but accept the idea that we need to rethink how we see the world. I wrote a book last year called Framers, which is about how we need to reframe the world to solve our problems. But to start us off, why don't, can I just grab this form and look for the Huxley quote? Because I want to read it out loud. I Do you want me uh, to read it out loud? May I? Because I think I can, can. I can emphasize You can make it a little bit better. Well, no, it's not that it's going to be better. I want to emphasize the nonsensical elements of what he's saying. 
technological progress has merely provided us with more efficient means of going backwards. So I'm a writer. I live in the dark arts of using words to manipulate how people think. And this, whenever you hear something that is, that is lusciously aphorismic, and as a beautiful aphorism, as an epigram, behind it is often an empty philosophy. So let's, let's examine what Huxley says and then think about it for the topic of the panel. Technological progress has merely provided us with an efficient means of going backwards. That's absolutely not true. Right? But let's think about what the world looked like in the, you know, the mid-20th century when he wrote that, as an extremely wealthy chap who went to the best schools and had the last name of the best families. Um, world War I decimated an entire generation. World War II was beating down. Uh, it was, he probably wrote it probably uh, in the 30s or 40s, so it might have been prior to the war. It was beating down where there was a real contest between capitalism and freedom and other forms of government and managing the economy. So we can understand that the idea of technological progress was besmirched, but there was something else you know, from an ideation standpoint that was happening at the time, and that's this historic battering of, what, of Whig history. So Butterfield wrote a book, I guess around 1920s, called, 1930s rather, called The Whig Interpretation of History, in which he said that this idea of progress, this, this, this train that went on that just seems to be this evolution that we can't get off, that is going to mean that tomorrow is gonna to be better than yesterday, uh, is just simply a way of seeing things, and it's actually not the ground truth, it's not real. And historians need to be better at not being duped by this game of extrapolation of this positivistic nature. And I would agree with that. However, and the however is that if you think of progress, and you can say that we want to, I think we don't want to define it because we'll be here all day, but we'll accept the fact that it is about human fulfillment, however a human being wishes to be fulfilled, whether it is materially, whether it is spiritually, whether it is sexually, just, just human betterment, fulfillment, enjoying the life that we have with others, our associations, and our things. Technology is at the core of enabling that. And we can look at human history and not look at it in terms of materialistic terms of the economy like Marx, but we can look at it in a technological standpoint and seeing how a baton of science and technology has been passed from one generation to another to make it better, that we're living longer, we understand why, we've tamed nature, we're doing a little bit better at trying to tame our own instincts. Technology is certainly going to exaggerate and extend our capabilities, the good ones, and we're gonna be able to be more fulfilled because we'll be healthier, and the bad ones. We're gonna tear each other to shreds because we're gonna be polarized on social media. Technology isn't going to say that we're gonna be sort of living in a nirvana, but it is going to be a way in which we're going to have better progress in terms of living better lives. So I guess that takes us really nicely to the first theme, and I think maybe you can speak on it first as well, Ken. Is technology important in delivering meaning, value, and purpose? Do you think it is critical to delivering that meaning? No. I, I, so I, I don't want to take three minutes as I've just spoken, but I would say no. I mean, we can, have, we can find meaning and purpose and values outside of technology. Technology can help us in a myriad of ways, but it doesn't have to necessarily be indispensable for finding meaning. Now, many people will. They'll take, a head take the iPhone and take an app and it'll be headspace and they'll meditate, but it's really about meditation. It's really not about the, this sort of, this intervening mechanism, this tool that enabled us to do this. 
I do think that we have sort of been overly seduced by the powers of technology at the expense of more soulful elements of our personality and our, of our individuality, and that's a problem. But I wouldn't besmirch technology because of it. I think we just need to uh, draw the, the balance better towards who we are. And Kachin, do you, do, you, do you want to kind of expand on that question and the true meaning of, of our pursuit of meaning? I mean, I, 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 I want to first go back to something Ken said about um, this notion of progress, particularly in science and medicine, and the way that we tend to see that as kind of one of the most important ways in which we can see how things have gotten better. I mean, one of the, the things that was so interesting to me about the pandemic was the fact that the kinds of things that we did early on in the pandemic were the same things that we did in the Spanish flu pandemic in 19, you know, 17, 19, 18. Um, and that by its own sort of measurement system, that was not progress, right? That was at best stasis. And I think it brings up this really important point that we tend to see progress as something that really is this kind of passing of the baton from one to the other generation, when in fact we know in, in doing the history of medicine makes it quite clear that that's not at all how things have happened. That, you know, we're, we are, you know, you could say we're in a better position in terms of medicine more because of shifts in infrastructure and in, um, you know, in the, in the kinds of, you know, cleanup of, of city and the, this is what happens in the 19th century. Sewage systems are contained. People start to live much longer lives. Medicine doesn't join this party until really the invention of um, antimicrobials in the 30s and the 40s. You know, by the 40s, we've got penicillin. And, and that, at that point, we've got this miracle drug. And then by the 50s, 60s, 70s, everybody's saying like, oh, I wish we could go back to the, uh, you know, the last great moment in medicine's history when, when things were really moving forward, which they took to be not that moment, but the, 19th, the late 19th century and the discovery of, or the invention of, of germ theory. And so what you actually see in the history of medicine is not this kind of straightforward, we're all better off because science and medicine have made us so, but instead all of these kind of contingencies and sort of uncertainties that we then read back, you know, historically as a very clean and neat narrative of progress. And I think that's an important context to put progress in, right? That, you know, what we're calling progress is something that we've made up and kind of looked back and created over the generations rather than something that really is truly, you know, organic and moving us forward um, from, you know, where we are right now you know that tomorrow could be another pandemic and we may end up doing exactly the same things we did during this pandemic and also during spanish flu and that you know in some ways really defies the notion of progress that we carry when we think about science and technology so, so can we prod that why does it defy it what do you mean by that yeah you may prod away well i mean because i mean the, the, you know like the if the notion of um progress in this case is that things ought to get better and better and we learn from the previous and all of that kind of stuff that hasn't happened right in the case of infectious disease and pandemics in particular that hasn't happened and one of the reasons it doesn't happen is because each time we have a new pandemic the context is totally different different in you know not different in the sense that we're confronted with an infectious disease 
but different in the sense that no particular, no single virus is always going to act the same kind of way. So there's a real unknowability about how to deal with these kinds of natural disasters. And that extends to things like volcanoes and you know, other kinds of natural, natural disasters that we more habitually sort of talk about. Um, so can I just prod this again? So you're basically blaming the virus for acting differently. You're no, not, I'm not you're, blaming. But, but let, let me finish. You're not blaming the human beings like knucklehead politicians and nitwit <laughs> public members of the public that don't wear masks or don't get vaxxed. But, I, well, first of all, I think the question of masking and vaccine really depends on where you are in the world. So we know that in places in the global south, vaccination and masking in, in particular countries especially was not appropriate because it was not an, an epidemic in the way that it was for us here. But that's a very different set of issues. But I think the other, the other piece of it is that it isn't, I'm not blaming the virus. I'm saying that when you have this kind of, um, when you have this kind of confluence of factors, they will be different in each of these scenarios, but they will always be politics and culture and medicine and the virus mixing together in a different kind of way, right? And the fact that we are doing, we're kind of enacting the same kinds of, um, we, you know, we only have the same kinds of things to enact as we did when we we're dealing with something in the early 20th century, really, I think, helps us to kind of put the question of progress into different terms. But I want to turn it over to, to Nolan and not talk too much. <laughs> Sorry. Nolan, do you have anything to add about this kind of concept of meanings and value in the modern age? Or do you want to come back and take on COVID-19? I, I can do both. Yeah, I, I write a lot about nihilism, so I think a lot about meaning. And it, it is interesting that um, you know, we, we, we have so much of our life in increasingly shaped by technology. And yet, I, I try to argue that this, this is what should be a source of meaning for us, uh, really is more of a, a void. And I, I think this is something that, that people are increasingly sensitive to, that what, what previously gave life meaning, uh, as we see, for example, Greek philosophy, they discuss the idea not that, that we're supposed to be living technological lives. That's something that they had slaves to do, that they, they shoved off to the side, that that was so that you could have a life of leisure, that the whole point of life was to have a political life, that you would have a life of, of public debate in the public square. And what's interesting, again, when we think back, as I said earlier, to this idea that we're technological beings and we always have been or we've always been, that, that to the Greeks, this would have been a, a completely foreign idea. They had no idea that, that of anything like this. Uh, and if you look at Chinese philosophy, there's a similar argument. Uh, the Chinese philosopher of technology, Yu Kui, talks about how there, there really was no science and technology development in the same way until really after the opium wars. And they just had to catch up to the West because they were just militarily required to and how it sort of destroyed traditional concepts of meaning in China. And we see this happening as well in the, in the Western countries. And I think we saw this uh, as well when we think back to the COVID pandemic. It's, it's fascinating to me that what should have been uh, hugely disruptive uh, really wasn't to the degree that it could have been. And I think largely this is because we were, we were already uh, in technological quarantine. So we were, we were perfectly ready to go, uh, I'm gonna watch Netflix, I'm going to watch Zoom, I'm gonna order off Amazon, I'm gonna order off DoorDash. This, this was perfectly fine, and Amazon knew this because they understood that the market wants as little human contact as possible. So they're uh, right now working on having a drone delivery fleet because they knew the only human being you had to still contact was the delivery person, and they said, well, we can get rid of that. We'll have drones for that. 
so it is interesting that even, even now that we are, we are post-COVID, uh, this idea that uh, you know, we, should, we should keep that, that technological resilience going, we should, we should work from home, wasn't that, wasn't that great? And it's, it's interesting, again, this idea that, you know, going back to the question of how can we even judge technological progress, the idea, the idea that I can you know, be reachable 24 hours a day as seen as a good thing, instead of, you know, from like a Marxist perspective, be, you know, complete alienation of our, of our lives, that, you know, my students email me at 2 a.m., and if I haven't responded by 2.05, they're pissed off, right? So I, I do wonder to what degree COVID uh, has helped to reveal uh, the degree to which we were, we were already living in a pandemic, we just didn't see it. I think that brings us really nicely to our next theme, actually, which is about our, our dependence on our smartphones and our technologies. And I wonder, Cajun, if you could take it on first, but do you think we should, should we use our, our smartphones less and focus on relationships and community building and, and meaningful pursuits more? I mean, I'm not sure. I, again, I think as with the first question, um, I think the, the question itself is maybe not quite right, that there it doesn't need to be mutually, mutually exclusive, right? That you use your smartphone or you do community building and kind of, um, you know, that, that kind of more social kind of work. Because I think, I mean, you know, of course there have been all sorts, I mean, I think there are costs um, that come with the way that we use technology. But I also, you know, can see that there are really important ways in which technology can can boost these kinds of social networks, or at least shift them um, in a way that we don't necessarily need to value as, you know, either good or bad, but can sort of recognize that well. Now the way in which we kind of can, you know, in, uh, interact with society or with our community is not always in person and face to face. It can also be online but those again like it can be online it can be via social media but it can be in person as well i was i when i was lecturing the other day in a um, medical student class um, there are two students who uh, were talking really i would, ne I would never ordinarily, ordinarily do this but they were talking really really loud and i had to ask them to be a little bit quieter and i was thinking to myself they can just switch to text right if they really have such an important thing they need to say to each other right now that's a good solution to this problem, you know, if they're not going to listen to me anyway. And it seemed to me like this was, you know, that, that, that the way in which we think about technology kind of unnecessarily privileges it as something that is, is value-laden in, in often in quite negative ways. Um, and I think if we reframe the, that question and sort of think about technology as something that, you know, takes on its values in interaction with us, then it isn't such a fraught sort of thing, I think to think about, you know, this question of should we give up our smartphones? Um, it isn't an either or, I suppose. But it's a kind of you have to put them away eventually when you're at that protest or when you're giving your keynote lecture, that there's going to be a point when it shouldn't be out. Maybe, yeah. I mean, I think, well, it's also, you know, it made me think that, um, that you know, there's this, this, these students who, you know, I thought probably would just start texting. I mean, maybe they're, you know, texting about something related to the class, and maybe that's sort of another avenue of, of, of kind of interactions that, hap that can happen at the same time. Um, I mean, I can't look at my phone right now, much as I might like to, but, um, but it, I, I don't, you know, I think maybe there are sort of particular moments where you can't do that, but I don't think that that means that they are therefore mutually exclusive sort of entities or ways of communicating. 
I guess, Ken, do you have any ideas about this idea that technology can improve our social lives and relationships? Do you have any thoughts on that? So, I, you know, who would argue that um, that we shouldn't actually have these human interactions and we should double down on the virtual society and intermediate all of our relationships through the phone and email. I, I can imagine Mark, some people. So actually, let, let's go there. That's actually very intriguing. You're right. Um, so to finish, simply to finish the thought, I, I, let's do a poll. Who here thinks that actually, you know, Human interaction be damned. We should just double down on technology and enjoy our lives through a phone and other people. Raise your hand. They may be at home on they, their like phones. Like I said, I said <laughs> yeah, exactly. See, they weren't paying attention because they were too busy texting their friends. <laughs> okay. But the metaverse is a very interesting dimension because I think Zuckerberg is right that uh, we are going to, right now, we don't actually participate in the online society, we visit it, a little bit like a library in which we take out a book, look at it, and return it. We're not actually writing it. And I think the metaverse is gonna become much more participatory, much more immersive, and it's, we're gonna be living hybrid lives in the same way that we have. We don't, we don't have remote work and we don't, and we're work from home and we don't have office work, we've got hybrid work now. And so these hybrid lives, if we accept that right now, maybe it's realistically, let's say, for us, it's five per, probably 15% online, 85% offline, but our children, it's different, and even then, it's, it's not immersive, and it's not participatory. If it's more, let's just say it's gonna be 10% more. It's gonna be, they're gonna be in it. And there, their relationships will be formed, their relationships will be forged, they'll be attending lectures, they'll be attending concerts, they're gonna be breaking up with their partners and meeting other people. So I, I think we, it's just gonna be a fact of life that, that the network is gonna be connecting them in the way that it hasn't. The problem I see with this is that we've only had about really 25 years of the network society in a mainstream way, I'm dating it around 97 or so, of people just having the internet and the web and mobile phones as a part of our everyday life. And I think what we've already uncovered from it, I've watched because I'm of a certain age where I've actually seen, I remember w the world before it and now with it. And I've seen that evolution, a front row seat as a technology journalist. So the thing that struck us, I'll say, in the early 90s was the letters to the editor at the International Herald Tribune. We would get, like a lot of newspapers, handwritten letters, right? I use some of them on beautiful stationery, some of them on green pen by people who were a little bit off the, off the wall. And, but they were, all, they, were, they were what they were, a wide variety of comments, often thoughtful. Anything that we got via email was coarse and uncivil, or, or just much more, just, ang just a little bit more angry and a little bit more mean. And of course, if we had any other interaction with that person for whatever reason, we were gonna publish or something, sweetest person in the world. So there's something about that distance, that intermediation we have through technology that makes people a little bit more uncivil. And I think that that's the pathology of the technology that we're living with today that we've not yet come to terms with and figured out a way socially how to uh, mitigate. It's like you need some pop-up that comes up and says, do you really want to email that? Are you sure you want to tweet that right now? Yeah. <laughs> I, I, yeah. I wonder, Nolan, if you wanted to add to that. Has, has, kind of, has it changed our values and changed our 
concepts of what it is to be normal and civil to one another? Has technology ultimately changed us? Oh yeah, definitely. And I, I think uh, you know it's 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 fascinating to me that you know I, I have a smartphone, I have a smartwatch. I get accused by my colleagues that that I'm a, a Protestant priest judging the congregation, and I always remind them that I'm Jewish. But it's again, um, you know, I, I diagnose my own disease, so to speak. And I, I think it is important that. Again, this idea that technology uh, doesn't just facilitate communication, it reshapes what we think it means to communicate. So importantly, we think that uh, I'm speaking to you when I'm talking to you on Zoom, and I'm actually seeing a two-dimensional, you know, smart little box. And increasingly, I have students who uh, say, you know, can I, can I do the, the hybrid lecture? And I say, you know, you're not going to be able to hear anything. You're probably not going to be able to see anything. And they say, oh, it's fine. That, that's better than nothing. And I, I worry that it actually, no, that, that's worse than nothing, right? That, that actually, if, if you hadn't had that advantage, if you had the, the requirement and the, the desire to actually be there physically, that you would appreciate that what you're experiencing isn't what you think it is. So I do think it's important to appreciate the degree to which uh, you know, Jacques Ellul already in the 1950s was discussing this idea that you know, technology doesn't just not care about values, it actually gives us values. So for example, one of our favorite values today, efficiency, this, this is a technological value. And then increasingly we think that the faster you get something, the easier you get something, that makes it good. Instead of questioning, well what, well, what is it? And why do I want it so fast? And why do I want it, right? When I go to the airport, the, the, the good seat is the one that's close to an outlet, which means it's good for my smartphone, it's not good for me. And it, I wake up and my smartphone says, you know, I'm, I'm sorry, I'm, I'm busy uh, installing a, a software update. I'm, I'm not available for you right now. And then it suddenly says, hey, human, click this button. That's, that's your only role in this, right? So it's more that, that the smartphone has me. It's not that I have the smartphone. I wonder, Kachin, just to kind of close off this theme, if there was evidence that having a smartphone was causing detriment to your human health, would you give up your smartphone? We hear Nolan's a big fan. But if it was if it was gonna if it was gonna damage us and there was evidence saying it was damaging us, would you be able to give it up? I think personally I, I would. I don't yeah. I came when I came into the green room to meet you before you were giving an online lecture at a philosophy event, you were giving it via Zoom, I yeah. presume. Yeah. Could you give up that world? Yeah, I'd be happy to. I would. I could have just said, I, I'm sorry, I can't do this lecture, right? And that would have been absolutely fine with me. I don't, I don't, feel, uh, I don't feel a strong affinity for this mode of communication, um, but I also don't feel that, you know, it's a little bit like thinking about, you know, medieval manuscripts, um, and then comes the printing press, right? And the, 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 the thing that mediates our communication changes, and I think it's just right to say, and, you know, those, then the values also change. Um, in part because of the relation, the new relationship we have with this medium, this technology. But I don't necessarily feel, you know, that that, that it has to be a, a, a bad thing, right? That new forms will crop up, but you know, they'll come ab they'll, there'll be even more new forms after this. Things will change, and, and that's the only sort of guarantee. I guess I should give you the option too, Ken. I'm guessing you're not going to get rid of your smartphone. Uh, I don't know. I mean, we, we change during our lives, right? So, um, like, if you asked me five, ten years ago, I would have said it's preposterous. Today, probably not. Tomorrow, sure. I mean, I, I, actually, I wouldn't give it up. I, tr I, I treat it as I do booze, right? I mean, I absolutely adore Bordeaux wine and single malt scotch. 
like I don't get drunk. Like I drink a glass, I'm totally happy with it. I just do it in moderation. I mean, I feel like I'm a stoic now. I'm not. I'm, there's no virtue on stage. But, uh, but in that one domain, I just feel like, well, I, the bigger issue is when did we, when did we lose virtue in society? I hate to take it in a totally different direction, but when did we learn virtue, lose virtue in society in which, which this, this idea of moderation and doing things but not in excess was just sort of not even part of the public discourse anymore, where we're willing to blame Facebook for destroying our privacy without actually taking the time to go to the privacy settings and adjust them for ourselves and take some form of agency and responsibility for our lives. So likewise, if I was told, like, I don't need to be told that a cell phone is bad for me. I know already a cell phone is bad for us. It's bad for all of you. If you're not informed, cell phones are bad for you. They're bad for you in lots of different ways, but mostly because you're not paying attention to your kids or your, or your partner when you're looking at it at the dinner table. And it's also, you're looking at it late at night and you're not gonna sleep as well. And you're doing it first thing in the morning and there's all, all these other problems. So just actively don't do that. I mean, I've personally done that myself. I have an, an Apple Watch for the purpose of not looking at my screen as much, right? But still being connected. So if I need to make a phone call, I can. If I need to do something, I can, but I don't need to bring my cell phone places anymore and actually look at it. And so I've taken active steps in this one instance using technology to avoid another technology for the purpose of recognizing that I was doing it too much. I was plugged in too much and I had to get off it. So we all should be doing that, but we, we accept that when it comes to not eating an entire cake of angel food cake. We know that if we did, that would be a bad thing. We'd it would be unhealthy for us. We need to understand that exact same sort of personal responsibility when it comes to our information diet and our technology usage too. I guess the problem though is it, it, it feels different, right? If you ate an entire cake, you'd feel quite sick and you'd know as a result of that you shouldn't eat an entire cake again. But if you play around on Instagram for a really long time, you could feel really good about something. I well, I'm not so sure. I mean, I. I deleted Twitter from my phone about maybe five years ago when I realized that every night at around 11.30, I'd just go on to see what was going on. And then I'd wonder, why is it 2.30 in the morning and I'm still just <laughs> scrolling through? And I just realized, this is crazy. And then I was like, I'm out of here. So now I visit, via my laptop, I visit, I don't know, probably about four times a week for about 15 minutes uh, a session just to see what people are talking about. In moderation. So finally, our final theme of, of the debate is, is, is technology the only credible reason for believing that the future can be better than the past? And I think I want to hand that to you, Nolan, first to, to give us a, a hot take. Thanks. Um, I would think that technology is the only credible reason for thinking the future will be worse. And that it, it's important to me that, again, if, if the past is any indication that we used to think of what it means to be human in a much more expansive idea. So, so technology was, was one aspect of us. This is something, for example, uh, the former New Yorker uh, architectural critic Lewis Mumford, who is also a philosopher of technology, talked about it, this idea that, um, you know, that we, we could also have defined ourselves as musical beings, we could have also defined ourselves as linguistic beings, we could have also defined ourselves uh, as homo ludens, as, as the beings who play. And all of that now has been reduced to technology. So any of those things you would say, oh, but language is technology, music is technology, playing is technology. And this is what he was exactly worried about 70 years ago uh, and how much worse it's gotten now. So in, increasingly we think 
you know, everything's great and it's getting better all the time because we see it from a technological lens. Because this is true for technology, and it's especially true for the very few people who actually have access to the technology. So that's a whole other aspect we haven't even talked about, right? Is that when we do talk about technology progress, when we do talk about all these amazing wonders, you know, it's again a very small percentage who actually have access to these things, and everyone else just gets to see them on TV sometimes. So we, we're aware now that uh, you know these these uh, tech CEOs are, are going to go to Mars. And we think that somehow that'll trickle down to us. It's, it's weird we've abandoned trickle-down economics, but trickle-down technology, we're still very happy with this concept. Um, so I, I do worry that uh, increasingly we not only think of technology as the solution to every problem, but because we think of technology that way, we increasingly see everything about life as a problem to be solved by technology. I guess, Ken, do you want to come in on that? Do you think we create new technologies to kind of fix old ones, like your Apple Watch fixing your addiction to your smartphone? We sometimes do. We don't always do. But it's just so interesting. I think we're diametrically opposed on this. I disagree with the term only in, your, in, in, the, in the phrase of that. But, um, but will technology, is technology a reason why the future is going to be better? And your view is that's going to be worse. I think the future is going to be better. Now, I'll accept the fact that there's a temperamental issue here that because I optimistic and sort of or panglossian and, and, and utopian utopian um, I would I would say that but I, I think if you think of all of the all of the problems that we have the global challenges that we're facing in large part because of the technologies that we've created industrial revolution most importantly um, gunpowder maybe as well it's going to be technology well it's going to be technologies that are going to help us overcome it in the case of climate change it's going to be if you will, not technology per se, it would be bureaucracy, you'll call it, which of course many historians of technology see as a technology, the idea of structuring human organization in a bureaucratic form. A bureauc and by bureaucracy, and that's the easy liaison is to diplomacy to get rid of some of the other global challenges. It, hopefully we can you know, mitigate the, um, the sort of the um, ambitions of dictators, right? I, imperfectly as it is, as well as authoritarians on a domestic level. There is a dystopian view looking at what's going on with China and the surveillance state, that, which creates these tools that are just so easy to be abused and to erode human freedom and to take it for all the right reasons and the most well-meaning reasons to bring it into law enforcement in the West and for them to use it without the proper safeguards and erode human freedom in the West as a combination of Orwell, Kafka, Neil Stevenson, name your dystopian person. I think that that's a real challenge, but I think that humans are wise enough that we can, and particularly in the West, if we have good governance, we'll see, um, that we can force, we can prevent the worst of that. But I'll accept that it's, a, it's really still an open debate whether these technological tools are going to bring us progress or going to put us into a, a sort of a digital dark age. And can I just build on that briefly? It's kind of a lot to do with being able to check on what the technology is doing, right? A lot of the algorithms or whatever that you're inheriting for law enforcement, we can't check on as much as old ones. We don't know how, why they're making their decisions. We just take their decisions. Yes, but I would say that that's simply a part of the problem and we could say that that's like 
That might be 15% or 5% of the problem, but it's not the larger problem. There's a, there's a much bigger problem, which is that we can mass produce the technology and it costs next to nothing, and it is going to make our cities safer and people more secure. So just as cell phones are all over Africa, just because they can be so incredibly inexpensive and so useful, or maybe the better, better example might be the, the, the light bulb. Right? Light bulbs, when they started getting mass produced, just we had electrification everywhere. It took a long time. Right? By the 1930s and 1940s, there were parts of Texas that weren't electrified. Right? It was Lyndon Johnson that brought electricity to Texas. <clears throat> but once you had electricity, suddenly you had breakdowns of the family because you know, people weren't you know, sitting communally together, going to sleep at the same time. There's all of those pathologies of the light bulb. So I think we're, we're in a similar situation with these technologies that are that challenge privacy or that create, I don't want to say privacy because that seems so ad tech-ish, but the, the surveillance state and in, that enhance the power, the asymmetrical power of centralized authorities, i.e. the state, vis-a-vis -vis the citizen. And we spent from the 1600s onward creating a state for the purpose of enfranchising citizens and giving them rights. And the, the, the project of liberalism was bringing rights to people. And the state was the guarantor of those rights. I think in the next 50 years, the challenge is whether the state is going to be eroding the individual dignity, the dignity of individuals and the rights of those individuals. And then we're screwed. And I don't think we, we don't have a, we're not debating it enough and we don't have any good answers. And technology itself won't help us. Culture a culture of civility and integrity and honesty and integrity and like the virtues, if you will, is going to help and just belief in liberalism is going to help us. Uh, but I think that is that is pouring out like a pail with a hole in it. Okay. <laughs> On that, that slightly grim note, I'm going to turn to Kachin and say, do you think do you think we should be hopeful for the future? Are you hopeful for the future? I, I'm kind of mixed for the future. I mean, I, I agree with Ken in the sense, I mean, one of the things that occurs to me is that the, the kinds of values, um, you know, values really matter a lot, I suppose, right? And I think civility is really a big one. And, and I think we, we sort of overlook these other sorts of factors because of the kind of, um, you know, the fascination that we have with technology. So the question is never, um, you know, is civility going to make the world better? You know, who would say that? Um, but we think nothing of saying, is technology going to make the world better? And not to say that those are, you know, totally equivalent, but just that you could think like, well, you know, shifting values, um, you know, could actually make us more optimistic about the future, whereas technology is sort of a more mixed bag because we don't know exactly um, what that technology will bring. And again, since that technology is always sort of, you know, in relation to us, it can't just be that technology on its own is going to do all this stuff. Obviously, there's a big human component to it. And I guess I just wanted to add to that, you know, one of the reasons that we talk so much about technology in these terms is, is, is really in some ways a historical choice. It's this idea that everything is a technology. I think both Nolan and Ken have both sort of expressed this, that we can think of a bureaucracy as a technology. Vaccination is a technology. Um, but so are all of these other, you know, relationships that we, that we kind of have in the everyday. We can describe all of those as a technology. And much of the reason 
that we describe them in those terms is because technology became such a you know, really important topic for us over the 20th century, and, and particularly sort of returning to the early 20th century, this moment in which you know, technology takes on this kind of um, this role that really sort of puts it together with industrialization and capitalism and these kinds of um, these kinds of things, and I think we're n we're not quite right, maybe, to kind of think that the the terms of the debate should be framed using technology. Um, and I very much like the idea that we can think about other other factors that may include technology or may draw in technology, but those are the factors that, if we can achieve them, may really sort of propel us forward. Okay, and with that, we, we do have to wrap up and say thank you so much to Ken, thank you to Nolan, and thank you to Kate Ian, and thank you to this fantastic audience. <laughs>